See yourself become the villain. I can do those things. Because I'm not a hero. I like that. I killed those people. That's what I can be. No, no, you can't. You're not. I'm whatever Gotham needs me to be. To Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm your other co-host, Jake Harris. And tonight we're going to be talking about The Dark Knight. If my calculations are correct, we are going to be about halfway through with this project once we complete recording of this episode. We just got to make it to the end. Which we hopefully will, you know. But, <laughs> but yeah, if we've been... What is this, 13 episodes now? Yeah, we've been... Episode 13. Trucking right along, man. This is great. So hopefully we live long enough to see ourselves become the finishers of a 13th episode. I don't we know what happens if we die. Who knows? Become the, the podcast heroes or podcast villains. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll have to just see how that pans out. But if we <laughs> die, we won't know how we're viewed. Who, who knows? But we can flip a coin. We'll see. That is... Uh, we, I think we're, I think we're locked in. I think we're good. Yeah. <laughs> but before we fully dive in, off the off the skyscraper into the uncharted air of this podcast, yeah, I'm ready to go. Um, are there any <laughs> pieces of Christopher Nolan or Oppenheimer news that you've seen, Jake? Top up. Um, uh, I saw one thing, uh, which is kind of related to Oppenheimer, but it's not really Oppenheimer. Like, which is how most of the news has been for that movie so far. We haven't really gotten any definitive uh, info on whether or not it's going to be premiering at Cannes or not. We just have the actual release date of it so far. And since it is coming out in July, the tidbit of information I have here is uh, Disney moved the Marvels, which is it's uh, another sequence in the MCU uh, with uh, Carol Danvers and uh, Miss Marvel and I think Monica Rambeau from the rest of the Marvel, like the Miss Marvel universe, not Marvel, but it's, it's all Marvel. Anyway, they moved that to, uh, they moved that out of its July release date slot so that it would not be competing with Oppenheimer or Barbie. Um, but it's kind of a wash because they're moving it out to, I believe, November when Dune is coming. So they're kind of just right. like, Disney didn't want to compete with itself with some other stuff that's coming out in July. But uh, everyone seems to just be steering clear of that weekend in July with Oppenheimer and Barbie. So they don't want to, you know, come up with any more competition from the box office for that. So the the legend of the movie, I guess, is already starting to to build here. So hopefully it'll be looking for a big box office haul for Oppenheimer. Yeah. And I read the article you shared, too. And availability of IMAX screens was apparently also a concern, which yeah, yeah, not a surprise in the least. No, not at all, which I don't know. I feel like some of the scenes for Marvel and some of the other stuff would be available for it. Like, I know, I think they just did like Ant-Man Quantumania for some parts of IMAX. Uh, but I mean, if it's a movie that was you know filmed entirely in IMAX like Oppenheimer, that would probably be the one that people would want to go see more. So, yeah, I mean, I know which one I would want to go see. <laughs> yeah. And like, I don't know, I feel like people are maybe getting like Marvel fatigue at this point, too. But only just now. I mean, I don't know. Like, 
I, I think the sad part about it is I've seen all of them, like at least either if opening weekend or like within a month of them being released. But now sometimes I just feel like it's like jury duty at this point. But <laughs> I'm like, I watched that. I checked that off the box and I can know what's going on in this ongoing TV movie saga thing. But I've seen yeah. a lot of people get kind of just what the hell are we doing with this now at this point? So we'll I mean, they really are trying to translate an entire comics universe into film is what it feels like to me. Uh, I think I've mentioned before, I've only seen two Marvel films by my account. I've seen Iron Man and Spider-Man Homecoming and enjoyed I mean, the heck out of both ones. of them. Oh, yeah. 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 And I, I keep telling myself I'll get to the rest of them at some point. But at this juncture, I think that's really just going to be, I think I'll watch all the first several phases up to end game at the very least. After that, I don't know. I don't think I'll really keep up with too much after that. It's yeah, it's kind of hit or miss after after Endgame. There's still some pretty good. There's some highlights, but like there's like 31 movies now and like yeah. full of Disney Plus. It's so much, but yeah, going from the start to yeah. Endgame is like 21 or 22 poems or something like that. That's mm-hmm. there's so many other movies that are non-Marvel that I would like to see as well. I can't like a I don't think I have that much time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Maybe when the kids get older and they're like, let's watch this and you can finally like carve out enough time. But yeah, maybe if that happens. But yeah, there's too, too many. I mean, and I'm also locked into Star Wars. I have to watch all of that stuff, too. I don't have time for all this. Disney already has, you know, that's my yeah. attention. Yeah, Disney's got all of it, man. They got Star Wars. They got yeah. Marvel. They're coming for all of it, all of your attention. Yeah. At some yeah. point, they're just going to get all the rights to the Christopher Nolan library and I'll be screwed. <laughs> The, the Warner Universal 20th Century Fox merger. Yeah, gonna... the, the conglomerate. Yep. <laughs> so it's just one entertainment monopoly. Mm-hmm. But let's keep moving on because I don't have any news items myself since I've been so busy with my real life job. But I mm-hmm. have had time to read and watch some things. And I guess I'll go first on that. And the, the yeah. big highlight for me was actually talking about staying in one single universe, I watched the Batman from last year, the 2022 version starring Robert Pattinson. And uh, I had checked it out, the Blu-ray from the public library. And it's a new, I think, acquisition for them. So it was only a one week loan period. So I definitely had to get it done. I didn't realize it was a three hour movie, but luckily I got a big chunk of it done in one night with Haley on a date night and we finished the next night. And it was really, really good. Uh, let's put it that way. <laughs> I thought it was really solid. And since I was so locked into everything about the Dark Knight, it really touched on and even amplified some of the things I was already paying attention to, not least the examination of Batman's status as a vigilante and how he inspired people but it's more of a extremely twisted, demented way with how the Riddler sees it. Because the Riddler, in one way to look at it, is taking on corruption in Gotham as well. Um, and that's a huge through line of the movie and of their interactions, the Riddler and Batman. And that's a whole lot of what I'm going to talk about. I have a lot of notes for to talk about with the Dark Knight of you know what is Batman and the, the Nolan Batman universe inspiring and causing. Mm-hmm. And it was really cool to see them run with that here. I don't, yeah, I haven't seen any other Batman films actually since Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy wrapped up 
I did I didn't see any of the Batman v Superman or Justice League or anything. So this is my first trip to Gotham in the modern age since uh, The Dark Knight Rises was released. And this one absolutely can go toe-to-toe with The Dark Knight, I think. It's going to be very clear which one I prefer, but uh, (laughs) partly because The Dark Knight's been around for so long. And I'm definitely going to keep going back to The Batman, not least of which may have the score in that Michael Giacchino is something else. Yeah. So I was yeah, I was very surprised at how much I liked it when I saw it because like I had seen I think by the time I saw the Batman, I hadn't seen Justice League yet, and I still need to watch the Zack Snyder cut of that. Cause the original one is uh horrible. You don't need to waste your time on that one. That's what I'm hearing. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I did kind of like Affleck's take on Batman as like a like they're trying to do like old, worn out, I'm tired of this shit, Batman. <laughs> and I liked his take on that too, but the Pattinson part, like I loved the Nirvana cues and like his, that whole take on it. And the it did the origin stuff without laying it on too thick. I think, cause like, I think they knew that, you know, we've seen a million and one Batman movie so far, but yeah, um, yeah I'm glad you enjoyed that one. It felt more year one than mm-hmm. Batman Begins mm-hmm. did. I mean, I could, having read a couple of the comics now, I was able to see and appreciate a lot of the things they pulled from the the couple I've read. So, yeah. And then seeing the color contrast and so how Nolan shot oh, his so Batman films and how this one was shot. Yeah, it's it's red versus blue. And oh, yeah, yeah. And very cool. And also, that city is never dry. I mean, it was, it was <laughs> no. of course, at the end, but Just it was very, swamp. it's always raining. Yeah. So much that I noticed like, whoa, it's not raining. And now it's raining again. And then it uh, it amplified that one for sure at the end as well uh-huh. <laughs> with, the, with the flood and the whole set. But yeah, I think it, it was really fantastic. Um, I don't I don't know what I expected. I mean, I'd heard so much about it being really good, but I think I went in without any expectations of it, like or biases, trying to compare it actively, like saying, you oh, know, this is definitely not better or not. But I think it's a really extremely well told Batman story. And I am excited to see what they do with part two in a couple of years. So that should be fun. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah. So what have you got, Jake? What have you got this week? Um, I've got another book recommendation this week. Uh, I just finished up reading uh, Stephen Graham Jones's uh, Don't Fear the Reaper, which is a horror novel. It's the second installation in his Indian Lake trilogy. The third book uh, should be coming out sometime maybe the end of this year, maybe next year. I don't know. I, I just listened to a podcast that he was on where he said he had submitted the final draft to the publisher, but um, it is a series about a, a young native American girl. Uh, the first one is, uh, and she's a teenager, a high school senior who is obsessed with horror films and slasher films as a way to just cope with all the bad hands that life has dealt her. Um, and then she starts seeing that, there are some mysterious deaths that are popping up in her community that remind her a lot of a slasher film. And so it, it gets very like scream ish in that she has all these, not this knowledge of these horror films. And so that's how she knows how to stop the killer. But she herself doesn't think that she can be the final girl, the one that survives to the end. So she instead uses all of her horror movie knowledge to train this one girl who she thinks is like perfect uh, and becomes friends with her so that she can then become the final girl. Um, and then it kind of becomes their journey through 
how everything you know happens as a, a way to defeat this killer that descends on their town. But the second one picks up right where that left off, uh, and this one has some some real life consequences, unlike horror movies, where the main character her name's Jade. She uh, served some jail time for the some of the events that happened in the first book, um, and then she's coming back home, and then there's yet another killer on the loose. And so this time she has to really think like, well, maybe I am the one that's supposed to survive. And so she reunites with her old friend and some of their old characters from the first book. And they have to band together to kill this other uh, slasher that's coming through town. And it's, it's got a lot of like horror slasher movie references in it. So if you don't, if you haven't seen a couple of those, you might be a little bit lost, but it's always written in a way that the characters come first and the action comes first. Like a lot of it is like reading a, like a jump scare horror movie in book form. But there's some really good emotional beats toward the end. I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it yet, but like I was almost crying at one point <laughs> at the end, like with how poignant and layered and nuanced a character's uh, scene was towards the end. And it's just really good. But uh, by the time this uh, episode hits your ears, there should be a review that I have up on the book where I go into a little bit more detail about it up at bookandfilmglobe.com. So if you want to read that, for some more detailed thoughts, check that out. But uh, if you want to read more of Stephen Graham Jones' stuff too, he's written like, I don't know, like 50 some short stories, novellas, a couple dozen books. Like he's very prolific. Um, Native American writer from Texas uh, is really good. But if you want to check that out, that's Don't Fear the Reaper by Stephen Graham Jones. Very good. Sounds like there's a lot going on in there. Yeah. There's so much going on. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not a criticism, but just what I heard from you. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's like your cup of tea or not for your movie taste or whatever, but it's, it's good. I'm trying to slowly venture out a little bit more into some horror stuff. I've been trying to get a little more acclimated, let's say. Yeah. 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 Try and be open to almost anything. <laughs> we'll say. Yeah. But this is not a Don't Fear the Reaper or The Batman or a Marvel podcast. <laughs> what is this, Jake? This is a Christopher Nolan podcast, Marshall. And yes, indeed. like we mentioned before, we are talking about The Dark Knight. And so I guess, you know, spoilers for a very influential 10-year-old, more than 10-year-old movie. It's part of the we, 1 Million Watch Club on Letterboxd. Yeah, there's a lot of people have seen this. Hopefully you've uh, seen it as we talk about it because we've got a lot to say. So yeah, just blanket spoiler alert reminder uh, for anyone. So if you have not seen this great film, uh, please pause this and go do that and come right back. Yeah. So we're going to jump into the synopsis and the little details before we go all out talk about this movie. So it was released in 2008. What a year. Directed by Christopher Nolan, starring Christian Bale, Heath Ledger, and Aaron Eckhart. In color, shot on 35mm and 70mm film for the IMAX scenes, 152 minutes long. And the synopsis from IMDb says, When the menace known as the Joker wreaks havoc and chaos on the people of Gotham, Batman must accept one of the greatest psychological and physical tests of his ability to fight injustice. Man, when you produce it down to these IMDb synopses, it's says it really feels so insufficient, but but they gotta try. 
yeah a lot a lot of psychological tests really a lot of yeah a lot of tests of his one one rule to not kill anyone but yeah i don't know if we need to do you think we need to get into like more of a beat by beat thing or not too much but only after we talk about how we watch this movie probably for the first time because uh you know i watched this on the blu-ray at home for (laughs) i don't know how many times i've seen this movie now but how did you first see this jake uh, so I actually saw this for the first time on vacation. So this would have been summer 08, which would have been the summer in between. We moved from Korea to Japan with a brief detour uh, going back stateside to visit some family members. And uh, I remember my aunt and uncle um, wanted to go do a road trip down to Florida. And so me, my mom, my brother... And my cousins and my aunt and uncle all took a little road trip, went down there, hung out for the week. And that happened to be the week that this movie came out. And so I was like, when are we going to go see Dark Knight? When are we going to go see this movie? Uh, And like my brother was like real excited for it. And my my cousins and my uncle are not really like big movie people, but like they're big like family event people. Um, And so my uncle was like, all right, well, we can find a midnight premiere at a theater somewhere around here and then we can round everyone up and and go and so i remember we went to um i think it was like a joe's crab shack (laughs) for dinner (laughs) and then we did that and then waited for a little bit put my little cousin to sleep because she was like way too young to go see this movie at the time i don't i forget how old she was and then we found this like multiplex that still had tickets for sale for a midnight premiere and we went to go see it and the theater was packed naturally uh naturally and it was like the when the first cello note hits uh for the opening scene for the bank robbery like you could hear a pin drop like people were like so into it like they were ready and like you know one of the best like midnight premiere crowds you could ever hope for really like people cheering at all the right moments people clapping at stuff like the end scene where uh the convict throws the bomb detonator off of the ferry like people like cheered and whooped and yelped like it was great and I just remember, like, I don't think my uncle had seen the first one. I don't think he had seen Batman Begins. But after that opening scene, like, he just kind of, like, looked at me and was like, whoa, that was intense. That was crazy. <laughs> and so, like, it had even hooked, like, him right from the get-go. And so we saw it that one time. And then, like, you know, of course, my brother and I were, like, talking about it the whole time, like, afterwards in the next couple of days. And then when we got to Japan, I think it was playing at the, like, second-run theater on post where we were living and i think we went to go see it again while we were there so i only saw it like once or twice in theaters but like i don't know how many times i've seen this on tv or on dvd it's just kind of one of those ones that's always on in the background you know if it's on yeah Um, it's always on in the background of my brain it has imprinted (laughs) onto the wrinkles uh in my head and it's it's there it's everything (laughs) and like the we can get more into the score and soundtrack stuff later too but like i would listen to that constantly like in college if i was on deadline for a paper or a project or something like i would just like do that to like amp me up to like get me to get the blood pumping to write something so i can hurry up and get done you know just um, yeah it's it's great 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 movie and almost even better like theatrical experience than the movie for me at the time too. Like it was just, it was a, a good time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if I need to add anything about 
me seeing it in the theater for the first time because that <laughs> pretty much sums it all up for me. I you um, saw it a lot more times than I did. In the I I did. Yeah, leading into the release of this, I've talked before on the Batman Begins episode, uh, and I think in the first one, just how I was so hyped for this movie, and Batman Begins maybe even more hyped once I finally saw it for the first time. And so yeah, this was the first Christopher Nolan movie I ever saw in the theater, and. What, yeah. what an experience. I know. <laughs> I secured my midnight tickets. Um, my best friend at the time was not able to go for some reason or, or something. So I was, I went by myself, but you know, everyone in town was there. So I found a couple of friends, people that I knew from school who were in line. Who were actually, um, one of them was dressed up as the Joker and the other one was dressed up as Harley Quinn. So that was pretty fun. Um Thanks. And so we went in, had our seats, and yeah, it just like you experienced, everybody was just totally locked into this thing. The cheering, the gasps, the laughing, sometimes at some of the truly terrible things the Joker was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, more from the weight of Heath Ledger's charisma than anything, to be quite honest. And it just, I had never seen anything like that. It, and, and I had ex- even expecting it with how built up and the expectation with this movie with what came with it with Heath Ledger's death early in the year and just the hype machine kicking into full gear um, the marketing campaign for this movie was one of the first of its kind early sets what they talk about and the only variations and man talk about like surpassing everything just it made it broke all the box office records in the first weekend um mm-hmm. and it just i couldn't believe how you built it up in your mind and it was even better and so there's probably nothing else that i've ever experienced like that in the theater before and yeah i like you said i saw i ended up seeing it eight times in the theater which is probably <laughs> as many times as i could scrape money together uh, as a teenager about to head off to college to go see it including seeing it just several hours later, after the midnight showing at the eleven thirty a.m. showing, the the next morning, on release day. So, yeah, I was obsessed with the movie then, and I still am obsessed with it now. Every time it comes up, and definitely one of the all timers for me. So for sure, probably yeah. like one of the, if not the first movie people think of, one of the the quickest jumps from that first movie that people think of when they think of Christopher Nolan. Um, was this his biggest box office take? I need to look up. I need to look that up, but I feel like that that's right. In, in the end. Yeah. I'd have to check just because of how movie ticket prices inflated, but this yeah. one made a billion dollars. So I can't remember how inception or dark Knight rises did dark Knight rises. Maybe I can't, I mean, I'm not too up on the, on the figures, but I mean, yeah, this one's, it's one of the big ones. It's, it's on the Rushmore of Nolan. Let's say that. In 2008 too, this, this thing is recession proof, baby. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I could keep going on about, about the memories, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Um, In terms of a quick plot summary. Yeah. I don't think there's too much cause to go into much details here. It kind of picks up from where Batman begins sort of left off in terms of the first scene is the bank robbery with the Joker. That's our introduction to him with his crew. And it turns out he was with him the whole time. 
he offs everybody, yeah. takes the $68 million dollars for himself. And then we see that Batman's war on crime is continuing apace. He's inspired some copycats and uh, he's trying to keep those guys from ruining not only some of his crime fighting, but also ruining themselves mm-hmm. and getting into dangerous situations they don't need to be in. Uh, Harvey Dent has emerged as Gotham's white knight, as they call him in the movie, being brave enough to prosecute all organized crime and corruption in Gotham, along with Commissioner Gordon, or sorry, becomes Commissioner during this movie, uh, Lieutenant Jim Gordon, uh-huh. being an honest cop on the service with his band of detectives in the major crimes unit. And together, the three of them form a triumvirate to fight crime in Gotham, including a final shot at trying to take down the mob. They're going after their money. And once they've uh, rooted out all the money launderers, there's only one left. His name is Lau. And he hides all the mob's money before the cops can capture it after they've traced the banks. He hairs off to Hong Kong and the mob's like, wait, we don't have our money. What's going on here? And the Joker offers his services. He says, nah, that doesn't matter. Batman's going to get to this guy. And once he does, they're going to make him talk and you're going to, you're all going to be broke. And once that naturally happens, the mob hires the Joker to get their money back and to take care of Batman. So begins the true engine running and wheel turning of this movie as the Joker takes that and runs with it and devises a series of situations and threats and carries out murders to, yeah, as you said, right at the beginning to truly test Batman's one rule of not killing anybody or descending that far. And it continues that way along with the prominent judge and the police commissioner getting killed and they almost get the mayor. They seemingly get Jim Gordon at one point. They get Rachel and he partially gets Harvey and worse than killing him, turns him into, he takes Gotham's white knight and brings him down to his level uh, and turning him into two face. So ultimately Batman has to confront the Joker uh, in the final situation he devises, putting a couple of packed fairies against each other, one full of civilians and one full of of inmates. And they were trying to get them out of there so the Joker couldn't use them, but he ended up using them anyway, telling them they could each blow the other boat up and they'd save themselves if they did it by a certain time. And Batman has to stop that before both boats go boom. And he does, but the final twist is the Joker tells Batman that, hey, I turned Harvey Dent into a killing machine because Harvey gets out of the hospital as Two-Face and has gone not necessarily killing everybody responsible for Rachel's death because he's been he was dating Rachel and proposed to her and she said yes right before she blew up and now he's getting revenge on everybody uh, and determining their fates by flipping a coin. And so the final scene of the the final set piece is that Harvey has kidnapped Gordon's family because he uh, Gordon is one of the people he blames and all three of them are in this abandoned warehouse where Rachel died and they have a, a great scene pontificating about 
the nature of their actions and what it did to Gotham, their decision to act and try to fight corruption and crime and pointing the gun at the people responsible. And ultimately Batman has to try and take Harvey out before he shoots Gordon's son and Harvey falls off of a high ledge and dies while Batman saves James Gordon Jr. And then at the end, Batman and Gordon are standing over Harvey's body saying, you know, it's Gordon saying it's all over now. You know, we, he went out and killed all these people and whatever chance we had to save Gotham dies with him. Batman says, no, that's not what's going to happen. The Joker can't win. So what's going to happen is I did those things. I'm going to take the rap. You're going to say that I killed all those people that I killed one of your detectives that I killed the mob boss and everyone's going to think it was me and what Dent did and his prosecution and everything that's going to stay clean so we can clean up Gotham. I'm whatever Gotham needs me to be. I can be the, you know, I'm not a hero. I can take the hit and I can be the one that everybody hates so that we can save Gotham. And of course to end over the famous shot of him running away from the cops, jumping on the bat pod while Gordon narrates because he's not a hero. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector, a dark knight as Batman rides off into the light up the ramp and we cut to black and it's over. Boom. So I think that's a pretty good plot summary. Hits some of the things we need to talk about. I think so. There we go. If you couldn't tell, I love this movie. (laughs) (laughs) And I've seen it plenty of times to have that down pat. (laughs) From memory. Easy. Too easy. (laughs) So where should we start? Where do you want to talk about, Jake? Um, There is so many good things. I was talking to you before we recorded about how I was almost intimidated to, to do this one just because we both have so much to say about it. But what more can you say about this? There's been so much written and you know podcast recorded about this movie that i don't know uh if we will bring any deeper insight to it but we're gonna try um we're gonna try we gotta do it i'll start uh from the beginning really i guess just um heat has still been on my mind and i love that opening bank robbery sequence it's much uh it's much more chaotic in its own way than the bank robbery the armored car robbery in heat but it's still very planned out, which is why I think the the Joker's thing towards the end where he's just, you know, he constantly is just saying like, oh, I'm just like a dog chasing cars. I don't know what to do if I find one. And I'm just, I'm an agent of chaos. I don't really plan anything. Like in the grand scheme, sure, no. But like on a minuscule level with all of his little set pieces, he plans everything immaculately. Right. Um, and that's what he does here when he double blinds everyone on how to... Um, you know, on getting his crew to off each other so that he can take the whole purse for himself. Um, Gotta buy that suit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I liked that. And then I like I liked that they had William Fickner in the bank scene as a nice little nod to the heat. Um, yeah, yeah. And his little bit about, like, you criminals used to have honor and respect. <laughs> <laughs> so I liked that. And then... I, I guess like we can talk a little bit about the Joker too, um, since we're on yeah. that. When you talking yeah. about how he does say he's an agent of chaos, he's further on in the movie, but it is kind of consistent in terms of 
it sets the tone for his character and for how you're going to watch the movie with the Joker because talking about William Fickner after he yells at the Joker about that honor and respect, he sticks the grenade in the bank manager's mouth. And the first time I watched this, I was wondering, is he going to blow this guy up? And mm, what drives away? Yeah. The, the pin gets pulled. Yeah. And nope, it's just a smoke grenade. And yeah. kind of with what the Joker says, I just do things, you know, and it's teaching you how to watch the movie. He's he sometimes goes for the kill and sometimes he doesn't, which is what Two-Face is going to do later. But Nolan talks yeah. about this in the Nolan variations where he says, yeah, the things in the nature of the Joker that aren't actually chaotic. They're actually quite controlled. In other words, the Joker is not disordered. He talks about chaos and thriving on chaos, but it's the creation of chaos. The way he creates is actually quite precise and quite controlled, yeah. like you just exactly. said. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, an agent of chaos, not chaos itself. And you know, showing the schemers how pathetic their attempts to control things really are. So I thought that was a really interesting point when I read the book and then watching it here. Yeah, like he doesn't know, he isn't really concerned with what the consequences or the aftermath of what he does is going to be. But in the doing of it, he makes sure he plans for all the details and the eventualities. And that's really, really important for his character going through because it makes it much more difficult for everyone to predict what he's going to do. And it's very, like I, Batman Begins and this movie are credited with kicking off the, we got to make all the superhero movies more realistic trend, right? But this one has like a lot of comic book like very like heightened comic booky elements to it. Like the masks at the beginning, the, uh, yeah, just that whole plan. And then the, if you really stop to think about it, like all of the Joker's plans are very thought out. They're very precise. But then when you think about the logic of like, okay, well, and you try to break it down in your head, like, well, how did he get from point A to point B in the parade? What type of planning would go from that? How did he, did all his men just know how to march correctly with the cops, you know, like once you start, your brain starts to go that way, it kind of just doesn't really make sense and it can fall apart on its own logic. But like you said, it teaches you how to watch it at the beginning where like you're not watching something that's supposed to be, it's realistic, but it's more of a heightened comic book fantasy reality. That's just a little bit more crazy. Like with the, you know, like you, you brought up the grenade that is actually a smoke grenade. That's his character, but also it's just like, you have this buy-in to how crazy it's going to be from the beginning. And so you, that kind of stops you from going like, okay, well, how did he get all the stuff to, you know, light the pile of cash on fire? Like, how does does he set up his whole scheme to, you know, get those two fairies to communicate with each other? <laughs> like, it just happens. Like, he just appears at the beginning of the movie like a, like a dust wind coming into Gotham. And you just, you don't question it. He's just been, he's there. Like he's just there to challenge Batman. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing off of that, uh, that I did note, you know, it's like the, again, the movies where no one pays for a cab. Let me just do this thing. Um, Exactly. Yeah. What happens to Harvey? It's, there's no way in like real life that someone will be able to speak normally or function with that injury of half his face and upper half of his body completely burned off. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like even surely the doctors would give him the care he needed. Someone would refuse skin grass. Well, the doctors aren't going to let you die because you refuse skin grass. But the story demands it. The character demands it. This is what the character is in the comic book. And this yeah. is the interpretation that they're going with here. I mean, in, in the comic book, it's acid thrown at his face. I mean, that wouldn't be the <laughs> necessarily something that someone might survive either. But 
yeah, definitely not a complaint, but exactly. Like you've got to kind of embrace the world a little bit that you're in. And remember, yes, this is a movie <laughs> and some of the things yeah. it's possible, maybe not likely, but definitely possible. And that lets us stay in the moment and try to hang on to the ride with this machine of a movie as Nolan called it one time. Yeah. And then what was the other thing from the beginning that I was thinking about? I like that they introduced Crane at the beginning just as like a, a way to be like, he's still here. We're still, we're still dealing with him, but he's yeah, not going to be this time. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like touching on, Hey, some of the criminals in Arkham are still out there. that got out. We haven't gotten everybody back. Yeah. I love his little, like, I can't help it if you took my drugs and you didn't like what happened. Like I didn't promise you good things were going to happen. I just said <laughs> you, it would be an experience. They'd take you places, not ones yeah. you would enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> And then more of like the the heat dynamic, uh, like I noticed in in Heat how they their character introductions are inverted, uh, where Hannah playfully is like, "Give me all your money," and then Macaulay says, "You know, hands up, I'm going to arrest you." Right. Um, they both uh, are introduced in the movie via rumors that other people have heard about themselves. Or about the characters, like the Joker's crew is like, well, I heard, you know, why he calls him the Joker, right? It's because he wears makeup and, you know, all that stuff. And then after that, the scene for Batman is everyone saying like, well, I heard he went underground. What's happening with him? We don't know what's going on. Yeah. And then when you see them, it's two ways of them dealing with threats to their power. Uh, and then, you know, it's the, the, the costuming thing too. Like the hero is in all black. The villain is in lighter white tones. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Joker shows his face all the time. Batman never does because he has to protect himself. So it's just a. I love yeah, all the, yeah. the the classic. Uh, there's so many doubles and foils and just the duality tones to this that Nolan does so well. Oh yeah, yeah. And another thing I noticed too, last time talking about Heat, I've talked about the minimalism and the maximalism of the performances in Pacino and De Niro. Mm -hmm. And that got me on a, a line of thought thinking of, Oh, with this, what's, is there a push and pull there in this movie? And I finally realized, yeah, you got the Joker who talks about, he doesn't care about money. He lights, according to the script, a billion dollars on fire. Um, he says everything, you know, gunpowder and gasoline and dynamite, they're cheap. So he's cheap. He operates on the low budget because it's easier to be destructive with those things versus Batman is a billionaire powered guy working with this massive mm -hmm. arsenal that you, you know, he's got to have all that money to keep it going. And I thought, Oh yeah, great. Uh, that's a great connection. And further than that, it's also mirrored by the score with the Joker scene being just this slow note mm -hmm. for the most part that just builds up and the stretching till it breaks. And then, the music accompanying Batman beyond just the two note theme. There's a few other bits of music introduced here where it's just really pounding percussion, rolling adrenaline and kind of like a wall of sound hitting you when Batman's music is going. So I guess while we're on the yeah. subject of heat too, we can talk about the, the scale of things in terms of the cinematography and the city, mm -hmm. because for me, that was, one of the first things the very first time I saw this really got me as I mentioned last time that after the bank robbery robbery, the cut to that overhead nighttime shot of downtown Gotham accompanied by the music 
Um, yeah. It's still in IMAX screening for that right before it cuts to a standard ratio. And it just, woof, it really got me. And, and throughout the movie, I mean, the IMAX helps with that. It takes that influence there, turning the city into a playground, as they, they talked about in the Nolan variations. And what you can get with the IMAX and then applying it with that to that methodology, to that theory of let's make the city a character. Let's make capture as many of the buildings and the height of them as possible and really create this immersive experience. That is one of the things I think you said last episode too. One of the first things you think of when you think of heat is, you know, one of the first things I think of when I think of the dark night is these huge, massive shots and the use of IMAX. Yeah. And it looks like a whole different city too. I mean, it is because they use yeah. more of Chicago and they use more location stuff. They did Chicago, Hong Kong, London, like a lot of actual on location sequences, but it's, I feel like the Gotham of Batman begins is um, like the comic book Gotham, like, but especially with the whole plot about the, the train going to the middle of the city, like, which is just never spoken of again, basically <laughs> uh, for the whole rest yeah. of this trilogy. Yeah. Um, but then this is clearly it's, it's Chicago. Like you see parts of the L you see the, the under the dual highway uh, thing and the bridges and everything. Um, so you can definitely tell that that's what it is, but he, the way they shoot it is such that it, it almost looks like a different, I don't know, like it's, it's very identifiably Chicago, but also not in the way that they film it and the, the grand scale of everything. Yeah. And so that like, especially the, I'm thinking of the, the ending set piece with the 18 wheeler that flips and everything that leads up to that, like that is, you know, all very clearly shot on Chicago and everything. Like there's no more mention of, uh, what do they call it? The, Barons. the Narrows. The Narrows. Yeah. Barons is Stephen King. Uh, the Narrows. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> like there's no more mention of that. And it's clearly just to focus on like, this is bigger and it's way more expansive than the first one. Uh, so it's, it's a sequel and like an indication of a bigger budget in every possible way. Um, and they spent it very wisely, I think on all of the, the location stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely think so too. And it stands up so well. And just the, the fact of using the IMAX in terms of the production of movie, I think really, really helped this and going forward with the rest of Nolan's movies too. There's IMAX in every single one the rest of the way, including we're going to have yeah. an entire movie all the way in IMAX the whole time. I mean, I just come on, this is great. Um, <laughs> like apparently this one was the first major studio film to use such extensive use of IMAX too. So he was, already starting yes. to, to pioneer that from and that. I think that helped build the hype too just knowing that it was going to be some sequence that shot this and I from what I remembered I think there's some people we didn't know quite how it might work or something you know something no one had ever really quite seen but even in you know I was never able to see it in an IMAX theater because I just lived out in Me West either. Texas and there yeah. was not an official you know IMAX theater to go see things at. They did the things where I think they tried to adjust the screen so they could project the proper aspect ratio. Um, I I don't know if they ever get the full IMAX ratio on the screen for what I was able to see, but you could still notice the difference. Um, and even with that, yeah. you could it was 
it, it just, yeah, uh, it just really took you in. And there's, it's hard to think of words other than, you know, immersive and, and epic and uh, huge, which is exactly what the point was. But yeah, that is one of the things that sticks in my mind all the time when I think of this movie. And I think he took those influences with heat and then taking that, that technology from the IMAX standpoint and applying it so, so well. See, I think uh, how we danced around it long enough. Do we want to talk about some some heavy thematic material here? <laughs> Let's do it. Um, clearly, it's it's uh, the Joker is uh, you know the foil to Batman and the the opposite side of the coin, as we say here. Except uh, in this regard, the actual coin uh, belongs to Harvey Dent. But uh, yeah, he like there's so many lines of dialogue between the two of them where it's you know you complete me uh you uh, what would i do without you what would i do without you immovable force uh unstoppable force object immovable object immovable object yeah like we could do this forever basically just because it's in their character to do those things and they need someone to push back on them what else here yeah it kind of takes the the joker shows up as the kind of the, the negative, the film negative of Batman and his presence really kind of presents to what me is the central issue of the entire movie, which we talked about. The concept was brought up with the long Halloween, but Batman being a vigilante does his mere existence and his actions to combat crime and Gotham have they actually created the conditions for the Joker to arrive and sow chaos and death and in the Nolan variations, Tom Schoen summarized it as when he was talking about the Dark Knight. Attempting to bring order to Gotham, Batman has instead provoked the opposite, a string of copycat thugs and two-bit vigilantes, all imitating and styling themselves after the Batman. So not only has the Joker arrived, kind of the epitome of what Gordon tells him, tells Batman at the end of Batman Begins, saying, we're escalation, what about that? We buy semi-automatics, they buy automatics. But on the other side, you get people trying to supposedly help fight crime. But these guys, you know, in one of Bruce Wayne's first lines of the film, you know, there's more copycats last night offered with guns. And that's not exactly what I meant when I said I wanted to inspire people. So in the movie, just like the comic book, kind of leans into taking on the thesis that yeah, it sure does seem like Batman's kind of responsible for this, at least partially, because plenty of people, plenty of characters call that out quite regularly. You know, Alfred tells him this, you cross the line first. And Detective Ramirez says it's because of you talking to Batman that these guys are dead in the first place. Um, and then Barbara Gordon sees Batman after Jim Gordon supposedly dies. You know, you brought this on us. And of course, the Joker as well says to Batman in the famous interrogation scene. You know, they need you now, but as soon as they don't, they'll cast you out. And for me, yeah, the Joker, you could say the Joker wins with that saying, yeah, well, once Batman takes the fall for what Harvey did, that the Joker philosophy is borne out. And that, yeah, they did cast him out. They turned on him. They didn't need him anymore once supposedly Batman committed all those crimes. But I think the biggest newest thought and or breakthrough that I had thinking about the movie this time around was that Batman then takes that idea 
And that's what he uses to beat the Joker at his own game. He, he takes the blame for Harvey's crimes. Then Gotham can use now use Harvey as a martyr to continue rooting out crime and corruption and Batman wins. So the fact that that's the fulcrum on which they pivot into the ending just blew my mind again. Yeah, I, for me, I, I was like, oh, how, have I not ever really thought of this? So since everybody does hate him or is on the way to doing that, since the Joker's doing so many bad things, Batman kind of uses that, takes the blame, saves the city. And uh, it's kind of in the end, it's the Alfred's quote of, you know, when Bruce asks him, what should I do when the Joker's killing people in the middle of the movie and says, Batman, should, you got to come forward and take off your mask, then I'll stop. And Alfred tells him to endure. Take it. They'll hate you for it. That's the point. You, know, you can make the choice no one else can make. You can make the right choice. And he does. He's he's a hero, but he he's a hero without anybody knowing about it, which plays in perfectly to the things that Chris Nolan said about heroism in the chapter on the Dark Knight in the Nolan Variations. So he says, the whole discussion of the hero becomes the villain at the end of the Dark Knight, and we get the hero we need, not the hero we deserve. All this came about because the concept of heroism became very devalued post 9-11. It was heroes this, heroes that. It's understandable why it happened. It's the way language shifts. Mm-hmm. And then, again, like another part of what Batman does that even further solidifies more of some of what Nolan said. Things about like true heroism being more about the everyday acts, the anonymous things that you don't ever see. Uh, The things that people do that really like on a grassroots level that really do bring change. True heroes never really get the credit they deserve despite all the things that they do. And so what the film does uh, is takes that all the way up to a grand epic scale with Batman by having him make this anonymous choice to take the fall. And shows that's what the truth of it is, because what Nolan says is um, about all three films. He says the Dark Knight films absolutely believe in heroism, but what they say is true heroism is invisible. That's the kind of heroism that people aspire to, but almost never live up to, in my experience. And then further on in the book, while he's discussing Dunkirk, he touches on heroism again a little bit. He says the idea behind Dunkirk that we were trying to get across to the audience is it's not about individual heroics. It's about a community full of heroism. It's very unique. I think in a lot of ways, more relevant to the world and the way the world works. So he does say it's not about individual heroics, but it's more that quote's more about heroism being counter to our typical ideas of it. So not about an individual and it's not about some publicly hugely famous hero. And so just the fact that that's completely like the consistency of thought and theme there um, and how that's played out in the ending it was pretty fantastic and even an extra little kicker when we were reading the script in the joker's final monologue while he's telling batman what what happened to harvey there's actually a line that says you know i did something to harvey and to show gotham the true nature of heroism um so it echoes even there back in the in the scripts presumably the final draft of the script that we were able to read so yeah like all the heroism things and how that decision by batman is played and how he's able to take seemingly what he's responsible for making Gotham crazier, as the Joker says, and in the end, turning that around and using that to be a true anonymous hero, I thought was just shines through with how they did the whole thing all over again. 
Yeah, that's distilled perfectly by that end monologue. You know, like we, we chase him because he can take it and he can he can run for a while, but he's the hero we need, not the hero we deserve, which is obviously a nice inversion from what he says at Dent's memorial service uh, in that montage at the end. Right. But um, back to the duality thing too, like obviously there's the duality between the White Knight and the Dark Knight for Dent and Batman, but I, there's a really nice dichotomy there from uh, Gordon and Dent too that especially harkens back to the year one comic with all the discussion of how do you know your men are clean? How can you know which ones to trust on the force? All that stuff. But you can clearly see this version of Gordon is someone who is uncorrupted by everything going on around him. Even sometimes at the expense of his family life, you know, him laying low, acting dead, much to the, uh, the anger and disappointment of his wife (laughs) at the end. That slap was visceral in the theater uh, <laughs> and even watching it at home too. But him doing that, you know, for the the sake of the the greater good for the community and not really asking for anything and not, you know, that's a sacrifice that no one really knew about because everyone thought he was dead. And then you have Dent publicly falling on his sword saying, actually, I'm the Batman as a way to, you know, get the criminals off the streets, but then also to kind of get his own clout, you know, but then also he starts the movie off as this, you know, shining white knight rounding up, you know, hundreds of criminals in a courtroom at once to testify yeah, uh, to get everyone off the street. <laughs> and you think, you know, there's no way that anything could happen to this guy. And then he becomes corrupted by the death of his fiance, which is, you know, a terrible thing to have happened, especially in the, the way that it happened. But yeah that one event is the thing that just drives him over the edge. So you're kind of, you're left to wonder like, was this there all along or was this event really the thing that pushed him over the edge? I'll admit that for the first time ever, I, I thought of Anakin Skywalker and <laughs> the connection with the to that. Oh no, <laughs> the burn and with the reason why he fell to darkness and yeah, Oh man. But let's steer away from that for now. We don't need to do it. Um, <laughs> but in terms of, since we are talking about the ending, I, had a question that came to me, I think even before, I think while we were still reading the book before we even started recording any episodes of this, is that for the Dark Knight, how do you think that the ending of this would be viewed now if there wasn't any sequel? Because no one did talk about, and I remember in the immediate aftermath of this movie being released, people talking about, would there be a sequel, a third one? Mm-hmm. Um, like, what are they going to do since there's Heath Ledger's not around to play the Joker? What are they going to do? Nolan was a bit ambivalent about it until after he made Inception. But I remember, for me, I remember being, I, I was really satisfied with how that ended as much as it kind of just left, I was originally Batman being thought of as the bad guy by Gotham here. What's going to happen? And if I, I wasn't really satisfied, I at least didn't have a huge issue with it. There was no problem. I thought it was brilliant. But today, you know, knowing that there's the sequel to it and the dark knight rises what does the universe look like that doesn't have that sequel and that we just have a duology from chris nolan on the dark knight yeah we were um i was thinking of that earlier too and then i hadn't said anything and taylor was in the room watching it with me and she was like i think they should have flipped these and i was like what do you mean and she was like i think that they should have made dark knight rises be the second installment 
because that villain more closely follows what happened in the first movie. And then this is this feels much more like a, a series capper to me for everything since, you know, the Joker is like hyped to be this, you know, huge, big ultimate villain for him to fight. And then especially with the way it ends with that kind of ambiguous, are they going to keep chasing him or is he going to be, you know, become the hero that they need and deserve at the end? Yeah, I don't know. Because like even when I did see it the first time, I was like, that's pretty like I'm good. And of course, by the time that it came out, like all the news about Heath Ledger had happened. And so that was undoubtedly a part of, you know, the hype from the movie. Um, yeah. And so when I did see it, I thought that that was probably going to be as good as we were going to get. And there were only going to be two movies. And I was, yeah, like you said, I was satisfied with it, especially since, I mean, I don't know. I think I've seen maybe dark Knight rises maybe once. And it was the theater time that I saw it. Um, right. So I don't know, but I think if the series did end with this movie, I think that would be one, one of the most solid upgrades in quality of any first to second superhero movie. Oh, easily. And then two, I think it would be, I don't know. I think it would just be like a great, I think it's a great way to end it too. You know, like you, you've got this villain that just kind of sweeps in out of nowhere and then is captured, but you don't really know what's happening with him at the end. It's kind of ambiguous. And then it's ambiguous as to our hero, what's going to actually happen to him. He, you know, kind of rides out like a lone ranger except with the townspeople coming after him instead of celebrating. <laughs> yeah. And it, it stays true to the comics. It has, you know, it clearly sets the tone for comic book movies for decades to come. Yeah. I think even if he never makes Dark Knight Rises, this would still be all timer. Yeah, I think so too. And it's actually interesting you bringing up what Taylor said about that with maybe switching the order of them, because I do sometimes feel like, that this one, there's just something so different about this in the feel of it compared with Batman Begins and Dark Knight Rises. I guess it is partially because you could maybe sort of take out Dark Knight for the most part and watch Begins and Rises back to back and not really miss too much. Yeah. Um, and I guess maybe the League of Shadows in both of them being the strongest tie that they have together. But there's a way that... Tom Schoen kind of summed up the difference between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. He said, such is the quantum leap between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight in terms of cinematography, editing, sound, score, that the mismatch of the titles feels like the start of a new series entirely. So definitely feel that between yeah, those two yeah. movies, but also between The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, I think you feel that too. There's just something really special and unique about what this movie does compared to its its two um, partners in the trilogy that there's just I just think of all three movies there's just a distinct feeling that's makes this one stand alone and even stand not just in style and everything you see and hear but just in how the story goes and makes you feel so you know I also really think that this one, would be just fine if the dark Knight rises never happened. And I think like you as well, I thought, you know, if a third one happens you know, at the time, if, if a third one happens, should that be cool? Like it'd be interesting to see what happens. I'd be really curious to see how they handle not having 
the Joker, since, you know, he, there ain't nobody, there ain't nobody dead, but also at the same time, just feeling kind of at peace with where it was, which was kind of strange because uh, for a long time, or at least back then, I was like, give me more, give me more, give me more of everything. And strangely with this one, I wasn't, I wasn't at least a hundred percent all the way with that, which uh, was definitely a difference. So yeah, I think that ending works. And if you, if anybody wants to, they could ignore the Dark Knight Rises and that could be the ending of it for them. And I think it is just fine. I guess the last thing I have to say about the ending specifically is uh, right around the very beginning of the podcast, when we read the big sleep, I tied the ending of this to the ending of the big sleep where Marlowe's talking about, he's not going to tell, um, who was it? The, the general, the, whoever it was. Who oh, hired yeah, him. yeah, yeah. The general. Yeah. Yeah. That I'm not going to tell him that the guy he was re- wondering about old rusty Reagan, that he's dead because what difference does it make to him? That this guy's an old man on his way to the grave. There's no need to make him feel worse. And Tom Schoen even described the, the dark Knight's ending as Chandler-esque, which I didn't fully grasp when I read it since I hadn't read the big sleep yet, but it's very much so, you know, an evocation of a fallen universe in which the truth can never win out. But the line from Marlowe in the big sleep was something like, uh, yeah, I should have written it down for this one. I strangely, I didn't take a note on it, but essentially it's, it's the predecessor of a Batman saying, you know, sometimes the truth isn't good enough and people deserve to have their faith rewarded. So yeah, just, uh, wanting to remember that and giving uh, Raymond Chandler another shout out for, uh, for his little influence there on, on that, which, um, the truth not being good enough. That's still one of my favorite lines of anything. Um, just, just how, how Batman has to frame it there. And I love that. So <laughs> moving on, uh, if, if, uh, <laughs> if you're good with that, <laughs> yeah, we love Chandler. Um, yeah. Could we be any more in love with you? Oh, no. uh, wrong podcast. <laughs> Could the sleep right. be any bigger? Um, <laughs> we switching gears uh, tonally a lot. I think the the fairy scene at the end, where um, the civilians and the prisoners are having to decide whether or not to blow up the other fairy. I feel like that's a graduation for Nolan into the type of emotional stuff that he would later go on to make. Like, I feel like this is one of the bigger, more emotional set pieces because it is suspenseful and you're constantly worrying, like, who's going to hit the button first? Does it even matter? Because is the explosive rigged for both boats, no matter what they do? You know, like, you're constantly trying to think ahead and see what's going to happen for it. And the first time I saw it, like I mentioned at the beginning of the the recording when the convict takes the detonator and just chucks it out the window and he says i'm going to do what you should have done 10 minutes ago like people were cheering people were going nuts in the theater for that moment and i think that that's uh because i'm trying to think of like before this was prestige and then right. you got batman uh batman begins insomnia memento like there's there's a lot of big moments and big set pieces in all of those, but the the human heightened emotion moments uh, are kind of few and far between. And I think that this definitely sets the table for stuff that he would do later, like with Dunkirk and Interstellar, and even with some stuff in Tenet, prioritizing 
the the human lives at the center of those set pieces and i don't know maybe i'm just getting older and i'm getting soft but like (laughs) that part really moved me like they were saved not because batman stepped in or any anyone did anything they were saved because one the the convict actually had more hope in humanity than anyone else and then the other side of the boat was saved by one guy who couldn't and he thought he could do it and ended up taking the detonator and then ended up not being able to push the button. So either that was, you know, his own cowardice or his own hubris, or he deep down really thought, you know, like I can't have the guilt of all those dead people on my conscience. Really the, the ultimate thing was, you know, we save ourselves in moments like that. And, you know, you can't lose your, your humanity, which I thought was really moving. And I just, I don't know. I, I thought a lot more about that on this watch now that I I didn't even really think about that when I saw that as a teenager. I was just like, whoa, this is really suspenseful. You're and right. Now right. I'm just like, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, plays more into the individual heroism and the, the smaller mm-hmm. acts of heroism. And with the convict tossing the detonator out the window, because a lot of fodder there for rebutting some of the critiques of this being somewhat ludicrously like a, a pro fascist film. I don't know. Don't want to wait too far into that, or at least not yet. Maybe wait for the trilogy I think there's to complete. Maybe, but. There's, there's a lot to be said about that for Rises, I think. Uh, yeah. Got to, yeah, but yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, people much more smarter than I have written about <laughs> that, if you would like to go into that. I don't, I don't know. Have I you seen yet. Alan? Yeah. Have you, have you read Alan Moore's stuff about all of that? No, no Watchmen. His thesis basically boils down to superhero comics and everything. It makes all of us think in more fascist terms and it makes us big babies because it puts our hopes <laughs> in one thing that's going to save us all when really we're all doomed. And it's it's any interview he gives is great because it sounds like a crotchety old man, but like he's got some good points. <laughs> but like yeah. he, the way he says those points is just like, I made a great superhero comic book and now everyone took it the wrong way. And rah, rah, rah. like, so <laughs> right, right. But yeah, there's much more. I don't know. I don't agree that it is, but you could certainly, there are elements to it. But I mean, yeah, there's so much <laughs> in here you could argue for either way. And uh, I don't I don't really feel like waiting into that just yet. I might try to wait for that until after the Dark Knight Rise, like I just said. But yeah. I do find some people trying to use some of the aspects of the movie, like, say, Batman creating the mass surveillance technology to find the Joker, yeah, I was gonna, and, yeah, for example, yeah, and some, some other elements of it as a uh, and interpreting that as an advocation of those things or being extremely conservative or right wing and using that as a cudgel to repeatedly bash this movie over the head as a reason why it's absolutely terrible was I you know I don't trying to like apply a purity test of ideology to a film on either side and then making that the sole reason of whether it's good or bad like yeah that that's bad that of course the society um, (laughs) yeah like where kind of our impression in this universe, you know, cops good, criminals bad. Okay, yeah, in real life, it is not that simple. It is not that stark and dichotomous in terms of, oh, yeah, having the the point that, like, well, cops should be clean and, you know, this 
paragon of society and there are good cops when you know, someone might come and say, well, no, there are no good cops. They're all bad, awful assholes or something. And leaving aside any personal thoughts on all those things, but just saying like, well, no, you know, this movie shows cops in like a good light and, but they all really suck. It's like, that's not what the movie is. That's not what the point of this movie is just because it doesn't have, <laughs> just because it's depicting something. This is not a documentary. It's because it's not depicting say the police force as it truly is maybe in real life uh, in America does not mean that this is advocating for, you know, like a fascist police state. This is not what like, please stop applying that to this movie. And in other cases too. Yeah. And, like and maybe the, going the other way as well. This is, this not. The picture doesn't equal endorsement. Yeah. 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 And, you know, Nolan had some, has some quotes about that in the Nolan variations as well. But again, I'm, I'm trying to save most of my thoughts on some of that for when we get to the end of the trilogy. But it's nice yeah. to say, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the mass surveillance thing, like obviously like the Patriot Act and all that, like that was, some of that was there in Batman Begins too, but also like, cause, and I think I touched on this a little bit on that episode as well, but like this came out in 2008. So it would have been written like, oh six oh seven just about yeah uh so you know like clearly war in iraq war in in afghanistan was still happening was still on everyone's minds the prison torture stuff had been in the news and like everyone was thinking about that and if you see something say something was clearly rampant i don't know i i grew up on army posts so like all yeah, of this yeah. was just like you know that was what i was surrounded by so yeah, it was all yeah. like old hat to me but even I, I think in this thing he realizes the technology that he's created is very very invasive and that's the reason why he in order to get lucius to stay on he's like the only person that can control it is you because i know you're the only person that is trustworthy enough to handle it and the the moment where Lucius says that you know he'll never work at Wayne Enterprises as long as they have this technology, and then the twist later after it's all said and done is you know he enters his name into the kill switch and then that destroys all of it. So Bruce knows that it's terrible; it's a bad technology to use, and then it is destroyed. But then also he reaps the benefits of using it in order to pinpoint the Joker's location. So it's Ex kind of like exactly. a having it both ways thing. But yeah, I don't know. Like it's it, it's a plot device too. Like I mean, the sonar thing looks cool when he's fighting. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. So I think it's put it there to kind of make you think about what you think. Really, it's it really isn't yeah. interesting. A specific thing, one way or the other, because it's saying here's this, here's what it can do. But here's what the objection to it is. What do you think? Discuss. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so a very real world thing that had been happening applied into a like, and, and that's the the reality, the the hyper realism realism stuff that people talk about when they talk about this movie, I think, is is stuff like that. And then you've got the rest of the comic booky stuff, like with the villains and everything like that. But yeah, there's a lot a lot here that reflects the time that it was made, but also weirdly that stuff seems more relevant today in a way, I guess. I don't know. Like social media, you fork over all your 
information and you know like it's Mm -hmm. for just for convenience to scroll through an app i don't like it's not the same thing as having you know the nsa listening on all your conversations just to find one criminal but i don't know i think we're all so beyond the pale of what we think is okay in terms of giving up for convenience these days that it just is i don't know (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, there's there is so much in this movie. In addition to the mass surveillance stuff, there's you know there's torture and threats. You know, mm-hmm. when Batman mm-hmm. drops a mob boss from a couple stories, not hoping to kill him, but oh, to break man. his legs. Oh, he, the the yeah, I forgot the the sound effects of sound his design. legs hitting the screen. I was like, oh, never, yeah. And then I mean, he pounds the Joker into a pulp yeah. in that interrogation scene. Um, Dent threatening Thomas Schiff. You know, with the, the mm-hmm. coin flip uh, when he's trying to find out information about the Joker and we just talk about like negotiating with terrorists, essentially all that's here. And it's definitely, you know, when when I first had that discussion come up in one of my first college classes, as I've mentioned before, I was like, no, of course, no, none of that's like, no, none of this means anything to, tied to real life. But no, it definitely is the, the fact that it, it was happening made its way into the film in, in these ways, for sure. But definitely prompting these discussions and being something that we can talk about. You know, I just to be clear here, my opinion on these things, mass surveillance is bad. Torture uh, for uh, <laughs> draw is, is information yeah. is, is uh, I don't agree with using torture to get uh, information. Um, you know, negotiating with terrorists. Uh, well, I feel like you should take on the, the nuances of the situation, uh, depending on what you're trying to get. But a black and white thing, as George W. Bush laid it out, eh, not necessarily. So they're kind of my my general thoughts yeah. and feelings, just uh, in case people are yelling at their speakers here, the, the handful of people <laughs> saying, hey, what do you think? Um, you know, having to engage with the work and, and talk about what I think. So that's what I think uh, generally. But um, maybe we can pivot off of that uh, that we've yeah. uh, we've done our our required politics talk so no one can just not engaging with the session. issues yeah yep. yeah another thing that i wanted to bring out that i teased in the last episode i told you i'd bring it back the frank miller quote that i read in the afterword of well, the yeah, copy yeah, of yeah. batman year one um but kind of on the subject of batman as a planned obsolescence so the quote that david mazzichelli put in the afterword from frank miller was uh, he's clearly Batman. He's clearly a man with a mission, but it's not one of vengeance. Bruce is not after personal revenge. He's much bigger than that. He's much more noble than that. He wants the world to be a better place where a young Bruce Wayne would not be a victim in a way he's out to make himself unnecessary. Batman is a hero who wishes he didn't have to exist. So this quote has been in my head since I read it. And very interesting to also think about it when I watch the Batman because the Batman in that movie doesn't realize that's actually what his mission is yet until the end. But in this movie, uh, it's a continuation of kind of the ending of Batman Begins where he doesn't want to be doing this anymore. And Dent touches on it too with a couple of lines. Um, you know, the Batman can't do this whoever can't do this forever. How could he? And he talks with Rachel about that day where Gotham no longer needs Batman. It's coming. On the one hand, he wants to be done with this. He wants Gotham to be a better place to where he doesn't have to do this anymore. He also says Gotham needs a hero with a face, but not two of them. And he wants, yeah, he 
the only thing he wants is to not actually have to be Batman. So if there's any doubt about uh, the Nolans and David Escoyer like getting or not getting Batman with this movie and with the trilogy, no. Based on this, they absolutely get it. So in the movie, he's working hard to hand things off to Harvey. And the double benefit of that to him, to Bruce, is he gets to be with Rachel. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the illustrative lines, you know, Alfred's kind of razzing him about this fundraiser he's throwing for Dent in the movie and saying like, oh, you're just doing this to impress Rachel. And Bruce is like, no, fun. Yeah, haha. But actually, it's about Harvey because giving him the money to help uh, his campaign even four years out, it's going to get him in place to keep doing what he's doing. But even though it, of course, it does serve his motives with Rachel. But then when I was writing notes out for this, I was thinking about it as well. There's a really important caveat to all this. As much as he doesn't want to be Batman anymore and he's trying to hand things off to Harvey, when it comes to it in the heat of the moment, when he has to choose, when the Joker puts that choice on him in the interrogation room and reveals that it's either Dent or Rachel, without a second thought, he goes and he chooses Rachel over Dent, over you know Gotham's supposed savior. So in his choices, Bruce reveals what's really important to him. You know, so his choices really kind of reveal who we really are and he chooses Rachel over Gotham and I thought that was really interesting but then he gets a second chance at that choice again at the end of the film and this time uh, he chooses Gotham uh, mm-hmm. instead of his own mm-hmm. you know instead of his own innocence I suppose you could say and the irony of all that is he only gets to make that choice because of the Joker's skullduggery in the first place so in a sort of a way the joker kind of foiled his own plot with harvey chaos coming in to (laughs) to undo him there so a whole lot tied up in that that a brilliant quote with he wants to make a world where he doesn't have to exist or batman doesn't have to be a thing but also as much as he wants that he betrayed kind of his his ethos there uh you, you say a little bit like neil mccauley in Heat, like we talked about last time, he has this yeah, yeah. This thing about he made one choice to, at least at one point, one pivotal time to depart from that in terms of going after Wingrow, and then it it screwed him in the end eventually. So, mm-hmm. But Batman, here the difference is he gets a second chance to make that choice. Um, doesn't bring Rachel back, but it does. Uh, he does get the chance to save Gotham at the end with what his choice could be. So I thought that was really 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 fascinating shall we talk about the music or do you have anything <laughs> i think you wrapped that one up pretty well um oh i have a dumb joke <laughs> please yeah um <laughs> we can find somewhere to insert this i don't know but with the joker and the batman when he keeps saying you complete me yes it's a joke and it's a thematic symbol of how one can't exist without the other. They need each other in order to uh, fulfill their thematic destinies. But also in this universe, has the Joker seen Jerry Maguire? I was going to say, and what does he think of it? (laughs) (laughs) Is he a Rod Tidwell fan? Does he he shout, show me the money? Was he thinking that when he burned that pile of cash? Anyway, there's no way he's shouting, show me the money. Unless it is just so he can burn it all. Maybe, eh, eh, who knows? But no, yeah, let's, uh, we can talk about the score. I, (laughs) I love the score so much. 
probably the one from his movies that I have listened to the most besides Interstellar. It's fantastic. Yes. Uh, it's my note here is this album takes me back. It really does. I, I like, I have vivid memories of, so not just of watching the movie in the theater, but with the score, I remember being up past midnight. I, I don't know if I like knew it was being released at the time, like right away. Um, it was released a few days before the movie came out. And I remember downloading it in the dead of night. Uh, I This time, as opposed to the Batman Begins soundtrack, I had been able to crib a neighbor's Wi-Fi connection because Wi-Fi connections weren't all password protected back then when people were getting them installed. Anyway, but I was able to download it from iTunes there, and then I just didn't stop listening to it from that point on. Uh, it's and it still hasn't gotten old for me. This music is so good, and I did have a thought. You know, revisiting all this stuff, I am kind of surprised at all the new ways I had I have found to think of these things. So it's pretty cool. But I finally hit on the irony in a broad sense of Christopher Nolan being known for analog, analog, you know, shoot things for real, minimize the use of CGI. But all his scores are heavily synthesized. I don't think we've actually like spoken that out loud here. So right here at the middle, no, that's midway a, point, that's a good point. It's kind of really impressive how, yeah, try to do do things with real life except for the music uh, most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's plenty of notable exceptions, but for the most part, a lot of things we've used a lot of synthesizer here, and not much more to say about that beyond I think it's just an interesting contrast in yeah. what he's known for. Like yes, but also then the music is created with digital technology. Very cool. They do break out the organ for Interstellar, but oh, yeah, yeah, that everything is the, else is, is pretty synth- synthesized. That is the foremost exception in my mind, and I am <laughs> very excited to talk about that once we're there. Yeah. <laughs> but um, in terms of, yeah, the actual music, um, all of it is so good, but the Joker theme just really steals the show. It, that's the one that stands above it all because of how just unique it is. And I think Nolan's quote about it is kind of it just wormed its way into the film and every single time that it pops up in the movie you know it just comes out rises up slowly and you may not notice it at first but once you see the action on the screen matching with what you're hearing in the music yeah it may not register at first that something jokerish is about to happen but it's off the top of my head when joker says to batman you know you're gonna have to choose one of them everything like comes to a dead halt and then his theme starts rising in the soundtrack and it does that all the time with anything the joker does and it just works so well yeah like the the convoy with dent on the highway where you don't really hear it first and then you just hear that that trello start to play and you're like oh right what's what's gonna happen what is he gonna do and the, mm-hmm. it's a perfect, just a, a perfect uh, tip off for the theme, which I mean, it's what any good theme does, but like it's very identifiable straight from the beginning because that's the first thing that you hear when he's standing on the corner waiting for the the bank robbery to start. Yeah. And even over the opening logos, that's the first thing too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the, that's the main thing of this movie. That's the, that's the standout, but I love all the epic things too. You know, it just, that's the stuff when I'm, yeah, when I'm doing a workout or trying to finish an assignment, 
right? Back in the college days, that's that's what you put on. Um, that new three note theme, quote unquote, for this for the movie um, that you hear in uh, let's see, on the tracks, a dark night, and in the collector's edition, the expanded one, a watchful guardian, kind of the do 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 that one that really like pounds you in the face, um, really mm-hmm. makes me feel all yeah. the all the chills. And kind of like a new, I don't know if you call it a Dark Knight theme from the track I'm Not a Hero that starts it off. The do, 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 do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm risking my entire reputation by trying to do music uh, on this thing. <laughs> um, and then the track Like a Dog Chasing Cars, like that moment where he jumps off the roof to go across to the Pruitt building while Gordon's shouting at him. I have to save Dent every single time. All the chills. Oh, it's yeah. so good. Yeah. Uh, it builds to that and that one. There's a whole list of favorite score moments for me for this, but uh, what are some of yours? <laughs> um, mine, it's the opening uh, bank robbery moment. I had forgotten that I have to save Dent thing. That was, oh man. Oh, that yeah. was great. Yeah. Um, the, I'm trying to think, is there the, the moment where he, after the hospital? where the Joker is the final bomb doesn't go off and he's clicking the detonator to make it finally go off. And then yeah. he's like, he, he's away a little mm-hmm. bit. I'm trying to remember Like there's a little bit of it there too. The, and then the first bit we get of the Batman theme at the beginning where he's fighting off all the imitation Batman. Right. Right. Uh, just where it just immediately is just bombast and like watching this at home, I didn't like the dialogue never rose above the sound mix for me. And I don't think it did in the theater from what I recall. Uh, So I don't think we're at a point now where the sound is just so overbearing that you can't understand what's going on, but maybe we will get to that uh, in a few more movies, (laughs) but yes, um, (laughs) just the sheer bombast of the first couple of notes of the of the Batman theme at the beginning mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. to just kind of like lock you in with that. And then the end is what I always think of too, where uh, you got Jim Gordon saying the title of the movie and you've got uh, yeah. just the swelling Batman theme with everything. And then finally it hits at the end and it's just, yeah, that punch the, is yeah. the name of the movie pops yeah. up on screen. Yeah. Yeah. And not to forget James Newton Howard as well, who did yes, yeah, excellent yeah. work. He did Harvey Dent's theme, which apparently was his offering for the Batman theme in Batman Begins, but they went with Hans Zimmer's. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Interesting. I think, yeah. I think that was a passing line in the Nolan Variations is, is my source for that. Uh, we can double check that. But he also, as I was looking things up for this, he apparently wrote the track Watch the World Burn from the soundtrack, which is the music uh-huh. that plays while Dent is holding everyone at gunpoint at the in the, the final scene for him. Uh-huh. And I didn't actually know that, but I the reason that's special to me is because I wrote an entire paper in college on that track. I took a film music class because when you go to college, you are able to take awesome classes like this. And <laughs> TCU offered one. I was lucky enough to do that in my second semester. And I think the assignment was choose a piece of music from a film that uh, I think it was that scares you or that is that is scary. And, you know, write about why it why it is that way and why it why Mm -hmm. it does that. And 
since this was still, you know, just I'm just a few months removed from seeing this movie in the theater, I chose this track and was able to talk about it and why I thought it was scary and how it really it just rises with the the energy of the scene. You know, the, the music rises as Dent has more outbursts when he's shouting and then it goes back down yeah. again while when the conversation gets quieter. Um, it's just such an amazingly well-written piece of music. And I think we just need to remember here that this is a co-written score um, mm-hmm. between Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard. And while, of course, a lot of the Zimmer stuff is incredible, let's not forget the other guy whose name is on it because he made it what it is too. So props to both of them. And I know I have said that awards don't really matter on this, but this should have won a freaking Oscar for best score. And the only reason it didn't even get nominated because of stupid Academy rules. So not the first time that this movie was foiled by dumb limitations of Academy rules, but that is my own thing to feel mad about. And it doesn't diminish any, (laughs) any bit at all what this movie and what the score means to me. It did win the Grammy in the soundtrack category. So that's, uh, that's going to have to be good enough for us, I guess. (laughs) And it did get, uh, it got a posthumous Oscar for Heath Ledger. So, yes. And it uh, won for yeah. sound, uh, sound editing or sound mixing. Richard King won it. So nice. that would be, right, I'm going to, I'm going to go look it up because I do have it quickly available right here. Sound editing for Richard King. So nice. in a way, I guess if you take Nolan's comments on their all musicals and how he handed over the convoy <laughs> scene to Richard King to essentially score it with the sound effects. It did. Oh, win. that's a great. That's such a great sequence. Yeah. yeah, I guess it did in a way win the Oscar for, for some form of music, if you want to think of it that way. So, <laughs> all right, I can have my cake and eat it too. This is this is you know, this is my <laughs> podcast with you. I can make our own rules, right? Yeah. Uh, all right. Anything? Do we have anything else here? Um, I really, I guess, with the script, uh, final notes on that. Uh, Kind of, again, like with Batman Begins, every significant change I noticed between what I am going to assume is the final script draft and what ended up in the film is what got into the film is an upgrade every time. And the script for this one's already great. It didn't really need much help, but there was some dialogue that they wisely, again, excised some lines like when Gordon first sees the Joker's picture from the from the security cameras uh, from the opening bank robbery. In the script, one of his lines is, put this out. By morning, we can put a big top over Central Holding and sell tickets. And I'm like, oh boy, uh, a little bit too much there. <laughs> so my eyes metaphorically shifted to David Escoyer again, since I'm claiming he's responsible for, for some of the sillier lines in the Batman Begins script as well. So, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but otherwise, you know, just what I read in the script, what's on the page there, it's good, but then just the performances in this movie. Of course, you have... Heath Ledger is the Joker, just you know, taking the bar and just like hurling it like a javelin through the ceiling to get this thing yeah. even just more elevated, completely and, just unrecognizable from anything he had done up until that point. Yeah, and yeah. And, what I mean, a what a legacy! What a career! Yeah, yeah. And half the lines that they wrote for the Joker that we I saw in the script didn't even make it in the final film. And I'm going to have to assume that maybe he ad libbed or like proposed some different stuff or like on the spot with Nolan, they thought, eh, this doesn't quite work. Like what is the character going to be? I, I haven't seen anything explaining this or approving this, but it, you kind of get the feeling that's what they did. I mean, the different lines are in the movie and it 
that just feels like what the process yeah. would have been to me considering how how method he went for this but even apart from that there's like the banter between bruce and alfred it's good in the script but then you see the performance in the movie and it's just even better so you know it, this everything came together for this movie you had a good script then you had the people you needed the just the how this put the scenes together in the script but then how they actually cut it together you know they did what they needed to do to improve that and just the like kind of the vision in the script too at the very at least with the final draft again was it describes some of the shots that ended up in the movie like you know nighttime gotham soaring over the city and you're like oh they definitely knew what they were doing no one knew how he wanted to do this and they just executed it's just yeah it's good (laughs) it's just refreshing and it feels good to know that like okay yeah here's what it is on the page and it made it there and with like little fuss so having having that confidence in that idea the idea is there in place and just having it seem like relatively straightforward like oh it's easy just put it here on the page and we got it on the screen and with seemingly little fanfare was really cool to see yeah and i don't really have uh i don't think i have anything else to add to any of that i've uh I agree. Every change that they made was an improvement. I do think that some of the, there's some dialogue pieces that are a bit on the nose for me, like especially with Harvey Dent where right after he's about to get into the convoy and he flips the coin again and Rachel says, you would do that. You would leave it up to chance. And he says, no, actually I won't. And he flips the coin and then you see that it's two, a two headed, a double headed coin. Right. So you have the visual there, but then you have to have the added button of Rachel going, oh, you make your own luck with the callback to everything that he had said before. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, well, we get it. I get it. Young, <laughs> But they had just said that piece of dialogue so many times throughout the whole movie that that was just an added button onto it. But that's a minor quibble. That's really the only issue I had with it. Yeah, I don't know. I think I've got everything else. I mean, we could talk about the Heath Ledger of it all for for days okay, really yeah. um, and we and we probably wouldn't say too much anything new for that since that's no. uh i mean yeah what a incredible De- and deserved oscar there at least we got that. i just I, was, uh, <laughs> I remember like because the you know the news about his death came out before the obviously before the movie even was released like i remember where i was when i heard about that though because same. i was i got to school and there was a girl standing at the locker next to mine crying and like I thought, like a family friend had died, or her mom had died, or something. Like, so, and I was like, "What happened?" And she was like, "I just can't believe that he's gone." And I was like, "Who? What? What happened?" And she was, she's like, "Heath Ledger died," and it was almost comical because at the time I was like, "Oh," and then you hear about everything that he was going through and what happened, and it was just a, a tragic situation. Um, yeah, and there's not really written a, a lot written about it in the book. I think wisely just because you know, yeah. speak, speak ill of the dead and there's really only one person that knows or what like happened. Ex- yeah. Or like exploited uh, or anything. Yeah. And so, but it was clearly like it hit that person really hard and then was clearly felt worldwide. And just what a, this was not his last performance. I think that was the yeah. Imaginarium's wonder emporium or the, the imaginarium of dr parnassus 
Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, the wonder because yeah. there's that, and then there's the wonder, Mr. Mr. Wonder, and wonder Corey, Corey, yeah. kind of came around at the same time. No, yeah, Parnassus was his last one. Yeah, which I think they I they know, had to they, have other people they, come in and finish his performance, which is interesting. I kind of yeah. like the a wise choice too, but yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I'm trying not to tap dance around any of it, but like it was a terrible, terrible situation. But this is just such a an incredible performance, just one incredible performance in a career full of incredible performances. Even yeah. the the stuff that people like Ten Things I Hate About You, he's he's great. You know, forget the yeah. like the Brokeback Mountains, the Dark Knights, the you know, everything else. Like even when he's just acting like a teenager in Ten Things, yeah. he's great. I cannot let this um, moment pass without mentioning one of my personal favorite movies of all time, A Knight's Tale. Mm, yes. My introduction to Absolutely Ledger. fantastic in that. Yeah. Brilliant. Yes. He's, that movie's so fun. I love that it movie. It is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was part of it for me too. Like that was already one of my favorite movies. And then I heard he had died. I was standing in line at the bank going to do something after school that day. Because yeah, you said you were in Hawaii. So that makes sense. You were just getting to school. You know, we were in oh, Korea. Was. Yeah. even yeah even then yeah in the morning so and for me yeah, i was after school for me and i turned and i had the news on in the bank and it said you know he fledgers died and i was like wow um dang so that's yeah. i went home and watched a night's tale that night just out of like i didn't know what else to do and yeah. then i think yeah not tap dancing around it but i think one of the reasons that the hype even increased around that movie was because of his death and it's Almost for me, at least, it was almost kind of a morbid curiosity of, well, God, what could like, what like kind what of performance, performance do you give, yeah. like, to make it so he was having trouble sleeping and he was having to take sleeping pills and with that. So I just think it's, I think it's good that at the very least it was not to say he died doing what he loved, but that he, he took that role. I think he sought it out trying to do something different and trying oh, to do yeah, something yeah. totally to make it his own. And I think the best tribute, I guess you could say about it is that he completely succeeded and more. And, you know, if that's what he was trying to do with the craft that he was practicing, then I can think of no better performance to, to have there and to have as your legacy, unfortunately cut short as it was. So yeah, yeah, it's, I'm glad we've got that and it's a it's a damn shame that we couldn't get too many more. So yeah. But um you know, the rest of the cast, I guess I'll quickly do my thing of, of the people I recognize. You know, we've got a Killian Murphy cameo, <laughs> William Fickner, mm -hmm. Nestor Carbonell, who was love, yeah, uh, Nestor. in the midst of a lost run on the TV show, Lost. Yep. As one of my favorite characters, Richard Alpert. So great to see him there. Character actor Eric Roberts is Sal Maroney. He's yeah, <laughs> he's so good at playing just a, a dirtbag person. <laughs> like he's, I don't know if you if you yeah. keep up with Righteous Gemstones, but he plays just like a the same type of person. And he's it, it's this guy, but with a Southern accent, and it's great. Yeah, I mean he he pops up in Justified yet again. Watch Justified, everybody, in in a couple episode arc as kind of a, a similar. Uh, U.S. Marshal cop character to Raylan Givens, so they're they're birds of a feather, kind of stretching the rules to to do the things they want to do. Yeah, so he's 
he's a lot of fun. Anthony Michael Hall, Breakfast Club alum, mm-hmm. showing up as reporter Mike Angle. Uh, Josh Harto, who plays Coleman Reese. Apparently, uh, I'm mentioning because uh, he appeared in Iron Man the same year. So just in the <laughs> in the whole uh, uh, superhero blockbusters of the year. And as I was scrolling his IMDb, he also appeared in an episode of Justified, which I did not register when I saw it. But hey, it's on the credits and I'm a Justified stand. So what can I say? Uh, Senator Patrick Lee shows up as he apparently does in every Batman movie. Uh, oh, <laughs> he's yeah, the, yeah, he's yeah. the guy who the Joker threatens at the fundraiser saying, I hated my father. And yeah, that, not his first Batman cameo. There's a lot more of a story there, I think, but uh, no time to totally go into that here. David Destmalk. Is it Destmalkian? Is that how you say his name? I think so. Or is it yeah. Destmalkian? I don't know. It's, I don't know. Yeah. David, I'm sorry if I butchered your name, but yes, he's in here in his screen or at least movie debut. And I remember him specifically, not because he did such a good job in that short amount of screen time, but he at the time was also starring in a series of Wendy's commercials. So yeah, yeah, yeah. movie. I was like, that's the Wendy's guy. Mm. Everybody's like, that's the Wendy's guy. So he's gone on to bigger and better things. Um, But he did a great job here in his few minutes of screen time as Thomas Schiff. Richard Delane apparently is the acting commissioner. And I only mentioned that name, too, because I saw that he recently appeared in Andor as Davo Skolden, the scumbag banker from Chandrilla. So, hey, people doing things. Um, <laughs> he was in the Dark Knight back in the day. <laughs> and then Craig Haney. And I don't know if that name rings the bell for a lot of people, but if you saw the face, you'd know it if you've seen Band of Brothers, because he plays the character of Cobb in Band of Brothers, who's a bit of a, a jagoff uh, mm-hmm. in that show. Yeah. And when I saw this for the first time, I immediately recognized his face. But I'm really only mentioning him now because there's another Band of Brothers connection in this movie that I never realized until I looked at the cast list. So I always thought one of the convicts on the ship looked like uh, Josh Duhamel and... It's not the case. It's not Josh Duhamel, um, the bearded white prisoner that they cut to a few times. Oh, yeah. No, no, yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah. That guy's name is ac- actually Matthew Leitch. And I was like, oh, don't recognize that name either. But I'll just click through like on the IMDb page just to see what he did. And apparently he is also in Band of Brothers. He plays Floyd Talbert. So that's the reason I recognized him. And I thought that was really cool. He has always looked familiar. And I had never known until I checked it out this time <laughs> around that that's who it was. So. We got half the Band of Brothers cast showing up in this movie. Everybody's here. At um, that point, I feel like yeah. half of Hollywood, if you're of a certain age, was in Band of Brothers. Like Ross was in Band of Brothers. You know, David Schwimmer. But. Oh, man. Yeah, I remember that being a thing, even though I, you know, I didn't watch Friends at the time. I was, you know, I wasn't even a teenager yet. And I didn't see Band of Brothers until a few years later because it would have been just a little bit too early for me mm-hmm. uh, at that time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, David Schwimmer, Jimmy Fallon shows up in Band of Brothers. Right, dang. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ron Livingston, Everyone, who I think everyone's there. Is, yeah, his He's pretty good. That. Yeah, Livingston. He is good, but he had, I think he was most well known at the time for doing Office Space. So he shows up. Yeah. And, yeah. Donnie Wahlberg as Carved with Lipton. Yeah. Yeah. One of the uh, new kids on the block. Mm-hmm. Right. He's in. Yeah, I think so. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The Wahlbergers. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, uh, anyway, yeah, I got, I've got that out of the way because I, you know, I have to do that done with that. Let's, 
Let's move on to the letterbox review, shall we? I've I've held this up long enough. All right, I will find mine here. Let me clickety clack around. Boom. Uh, this one is uh, also from a go-to letterbox reviewer of mine. This is Patrick Willems. Uh, so if you like in-depth YouTube videos, he has a YouTube channel where he goes into everything from uh, why Michael Bay's ambulance movie is great to uh, some <laughs> in-depth stuff about the matrix. And then he did some stuff about the police Academy movies. Like it's like all over the place for movies, but uh, I feel like we've quoted him before at some point. On here. Yeah, I think I definitely have. You might've done it too. I mean, he's, he's got a lot of highly rated, highly liked yeah. reviews on Letterboxd and they're justifiably highly liked. Yeah, and he, uh, he his comment on this is a lot, uh, has a lot to do with the film's legacy. Uh, and he says, I got really sick of hearing about this movie. It inspired a lot of bad trends. It has a ton of terrible friends. And there's <laughs> some stuff in here that I don't really think works. But you know what? On a whole, it's exhilarating and riveting and contains like 800 great scenes. Um, yes. And that's, the, I, I don't really think that there's a lot that doesn't work about this, but that is how I feel like the people that, this almost gets overshadowed by the people that just quote the Joker all the time and just want to, I don't know. Yeah. Do yeah. the, do the Joker stuff a lot and, you know, just put the dorm room poster up mentality. Yeah. But then you get past that and you really actually watch the movie and it's truly, it's a great superhero movie, great comic book movie, just a great movie in general. And it really is just like, set piece after set piece that tops each other one after the other. And it's, yeah, it's great. And that's, yeah, his review pretty much sums up how I, I feel about it as well. Yeah. Like every scene in this movie just comes up. I'm like, Oh, this is like an iconic scene. And this one too, it's almost every scene you can describe as the blank scene and you know what you're talking about. So yeah. And the movie is like, it's two and a half hours long and it just trucks by like it's, yes, it does. It, the momentum starts and just it does not let up like it just keeps going and building. Yeah, yeah, it it does feel so short. Like I hardly sat down to watch it and it's then the credits are rolling mm-hmm. and I'm wondering where where did where did all the time go? What happened? I was just what? Yeah. So my letterbox review after my latest viewing, I dove into the letterbox reviews and looked at the good ones and looked at the ones of people who didn't like it for some of the reasons I, I touched on a little earlier about trying to like apply a purity test to the politics of the film. So I guess I was in a little bit of a defensive mindset about me loving this movie. And that's why I chose this review from user Eric with a treble clef emoji after their name and username at Ennio Morricone. Good username. Really cool. So that explains the treble clef. But the review is, I'm legally obligated to give this a good rating because I'm a man. So <laughs> there it is. Yeah, it's obviously made for, just for me. So, <laughs> oh, oh, a white dude in middle class America. Yep, <laughs> that's for me. So it's our uh, culture. <laughs> yep, it's our culture. We're, <laughs> we're just born into it. I did pick out another review that's technically not on Letterboxd, but I saw one of the ones that you liked. And I clicked through because it had a link, you know, one of the one of the mm-hmm. read my full review here. And it's actually not too much longer. I think it's Josh Larson is who it was. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. From film spotting. 
Right. And it took me to, I guess, his personal site, LarsonOnFilm.com, and his re- review of The Dark Knight, which appears to be four stars out of four. But the point he brought up, I really, really loved. And it's not too lengthy. But the end of it says, The Joker may be the picture's most arresting figure, yet he's simply a measuring stick for the limits of Batman's vigilantism. How far will Batman go to stop this terrorist? Will the Joker pull him, not to mention District Attorney Harvey Dent, who suffers greatly for being the public face of justice, deeper into madness? Most superhero movies make you slightly envious of the out-of-this-world characters and their powers. After watching The Dark Knight, you'll be relieved to be normal. So that very last the last two sentences. Yeah, yeah. You know, because earlier in the year that this came out, you have Iron Man. You have yeah. the amazing, cool technology that Tony Stark builds. He's blasting around everything. He breaks out of the, you know, his uh, detention early in the film with the primitive Iron Man suit. And then he like soups it up and it just, it's so cool. And you're like, man, I wish I could be Iron Man. And then Dark Knight comes along and does this. And I think I hadn't really thought of it that way before. I hadn't thought of that specific way of putting things. So yeah, it's like, I'm seeing the choices that Batman has to make in this. And then what happens to Harvey and like, no, I'm good. Thank you. So I think it's really cool what it does that like just one other way that maybe it kind of subverts your expectations of what to do and with the genre it's in they're like this maybe not be as cool as you think just think about that for a second Mm -hmm. um so i think i think we're nearly there but we have one more surprise review yeah that i i went to dig up from the depths of my facebook page my really really dormant facebook page but three days after this film came out, I posted my review. I was 17 years old. I posted this review of The Dark Knight on my Facebook page. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it is it's actually like a, a full-length review that you might see published on a blog. Or it's at least, oh, it's a good maybe six, 700 words. But I really appreciated it for some of the, the things that I touched on as a, as a kid, basically. I apologize for some of the tortured prose you're about to hear, but uh, certain extracts of it are uh, the film. It works in such a way so as to not leave the viewer feeling depressed as might be expect. And it's like my one error in the whole thing. I didn't say expected, but uh, I thought that was interesting for touching on Nolan's comments about making ambiguity a positive feeling in the Nolan variations. You know, it's such a there's so many bleak parts of this movie, but at the end with Batman taking the rap, it kind of leaves you with a not entirely unhopeful feeling, I guess you could say. Um, And then I mentioned the sheer scale of the movie, some incredible camera work, pointing out the soundtrack. And then one of my final closing lines was, you know, for all the hype surrounding the dark Knight, it does what few other films have been able to do by surpassing it. And that's kind of funny because when I, was building up my letterbox account. That's literally what I wrote for my little tiny capsule review of the dark Knight, without having thought of or looked back at this at all. So touching on the scale of the movie and the shots, they really impacted me. Then the soundtrack, of course, always would have done. Couldn't have let that go without, without that coming in. But what was it you said, Jake, when I sent this to you before we, we got on here to record some of your thoughts on my review was like I kind of pointed some things out. Yeah, I was, because uh, you were my copy editor in college and I had read uh, some of your bylines and stuff for TCU and TCU 360. 
And so reading this, knowing that it was before all of that, I was like, wow, all of your, uh, your sensibilities and stuff were pretty much fully formed from the jump here. And the, um, weirdly, like a lot of the stuff that you hit on with in terms of theme and the structure and everything were things that we have been talking about throughout this entire podcast and a lot of the stuff we touched on on this episode. But uh, yeah, it was interesting to just see like how the writing was, the, the writing style has differed as you've gotten older, but like the kernels of the ideas and stuff that you would <laughs> right. still latch onto are, are already there. Mercifully, the writing has has gotten a little bit better. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was, we, we were just talking beforehand about it. Like you were, you wrote this probably right in the time frame where you were doing a lot of college entrance essays. So it was yeah, a lot of yeah. like, therefore, please, uh, hitherto read the, the <laughs> sentence above a lot of, a lot of big, uh, five letter words when a you know, <laughs> 50 the, cent all, one would do, but all the adverbs, all the ad- adjectives. Yes. Pile them yes. On, in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which uh, I am telling myself, I will add this to Letterbox uh, since I have all the all the movie receipts. I can I can log the times I watched the movie and I can add this on there. So if that's not enough for you to go eventually check out our Letterbox accounts, uh, I don't know what is. But uh, you heard it from Jake first. I have not changed in <laughs> all these years is, is what I heard. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, neither have I. I come by it on this, So, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Huh. But I think, uh, yeah, I think we've uh, we've gone for the epic scale too on this one. But I think it's now time for us to try and wrap things up. Yeah, I think we've. What done do you it. think, Jay? Yeah, I think so. I think we've uh, we've touched on everything. I think we could think of for this movie that uh, hasn't been. I mean, it's probably been said already, but not by us. So yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, for everything here. Um, find us uh, on social media over at friends at dusk pod on instagram and at friends at dusk on twitter uh, if you have any emails questions concerns anything like that you can find us at friends at dusk pod at gmail.com and i am on instagram and twitter at jake harris four and if you want to read my thoughts on letterboxd uh, i don't know if i have any old reviews that i wrote from school i think the oldest review that i remember writing for anything was spy kids 3d in middle school so if i find <laughs> that you're in for a treat oh, uh, but that yeah. handle is uh at 808 jake underscore and where can you find you on social marshall and that that's spy kids 3d review that's that's my white whale now let's do that i'm gonna i don't know <laughs> if it exists online i think there's like a hard copy at my mom's at my parents house so i gonna have to go find it <laughs> yeah, do that quickly we we must know um but anyway for me you can find me on instagram at marshall.doig on twitter at marshall doig and on letterboxd at m doig and i'd also like to give a shout out to uh some of the reddit users we have been sharing the episode links on reddit at the r christopher nolan and r nolan subreddits and uh you know we're gonna a couple comments on our posts and appreciate the the kind words from the folks there who uh, listen and say they love it. So thank y'all. Really appreciate it. And we're glad you're listening. So just wanted to acknowledge y'all here. Yeah. Thank you. But otherwise you can uh, hopefully 
have the same similar opinion, you like us, you can like and subscribe to the <laughs> podcast on your platform of choice and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere you can place a rating. And if you like us even more, you can support us monetarily through our Anchor page. And then you can find uh, all the list of our resources that we have talked about today and for all the previous episodes in the show notes. And catch us next time, and we'll be talking all about the influences on Inception. In the meantime, that is all from us, and we will see you next time. Thank you all for listening. Bye.